Welcome back to the show. I have an out-of-band episode today with Patrick Howell O'Neill. Patrick is Senior Cybersecurity Editor at MIT Technology Review, covering national security, election security and integrity, geopolitics, personal security, all that happy stuff. But just recently, you've taken a shine to reporting on nation-state malware activity in, in Apple's gardens, in Apple's iOS gardens, and specifically around some of the discoveries around Project Zero. Before we get into it, can you talk a little bit about what is your beat over there at MIT Technology Review? What are you focused on? What are some of the top button issues for you in your reporting? Sure thing. My title's Senior Editor for Cybersecurity, and I'm the the main slash only cybersecurity reporter over here, but obviously that's a huge broad beat. And so what I focus on, as you said, is nation state hacking, also the hacker for hire industry, or however uh, you want to title that, and a little bit on cybercrime, although not much, not much recently. But I'm I've been very much interested lately in, in nation state hacking as well as the private sector enablers slash businesses around that and how that whole prior to MIT technology review uh, I got a wind of your work over it so cyberscoop is a DC security centric publication that's also on the beat as well covering a lot of the same issues you mentioned national security and this bit, bit of intersection there and this hacker for hire world when you say hacker for hire you're are you referring to mercenary type apt groups that are also in this nation state uh, world of playing that's right nso group dark matter hacking team all the classics of the industry uh, your latest piece, the obviously the big story to talk about today, four days ago, was your confirmation that the you know Google Project Zero, I don't know what to call it because it's all so convoluted, and I want to get into that as well with you. But Google Project Zero basically dropped a, a blog post that says over the course of nine months, starting in February last year, all the way through October last year. They had visibility and had more or less patched and reported on zero days that disrupted this massive apex tractor that was capable of burning through 11 zero days on watering hole websites and exploit servers. It's like all these really dramatic things. You advanced the story by confirming that this was actually an operation, a counterterrorism cyber operation run by a Western government. And your story looked into some of the, some of the complications that go into private sector reporting on some of these issues. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to chase this story and what went into that bit of confirmation? Sure thing. To begin with, the context is back in 2018 when I was working at CyberScoop, Chris Bing and I reported a story about a Kaspersky report on an operation called Slingshot. And the report itself made the kind of normal waves. It was Kaspersky's still good at their job. But we, uh, a few weeks later, reported that it was actually an American-led counterterrorism uh, cyber operation targeting uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda members in the Middle East. And it brought up, on the one hand, a lot of the same questions that this Google report brings up in terms of the ethics, the policy, the political questions that are inherent, I think, in cyber threat research, but that are very rarely discussed and fleshed out uh, in public. The thing that's different, of course, is that in 2018, the Kaspersky was under a very uncomfortable public spotlight about accusations of impropriety in their relationship with uh, the Russian government. And so that added an explosive dimension to the, uh, to the report, not to our report so much, although that was included, but also especially to the conversation after the report. And really anything in 2018 that had to do with uh, Russia was just explosive inherently. That was an important report for me. 
And when I began to understand what was going on here in this Google report, it became important to me also to report uh, on it from a, a Western perspective. As you can imagine, the conversation that happens after a Moscow headquartered company outs a Western counterterrorism operation has some differences than when a Silicon Valley-based team does the does a similar thing. And there is, um, let me I, think it, I just want to yeah. pause here for a second. There is no doubt in your mind or anyone's mind that these that these companies are knowingly outing what it is. We have to assume that there's a level of maturity in threat intel circles and among these malware hunters to know what they're looking at, right? It, no one can say we didn't know. That's not fair. They know the targeting. I think this is important. My, I can say this. My main goal here with this article about Google's Project Zero and also Threat Analysis Group worked on this tag was to make public a conversation that already happens in private. Yes. I think that there is a understandable mistake to think that the the conversation that occurs in, let's say, InfoSec Twitter is actually the conversation that occurs behind the scenes, either at these companies or among colleagues and, and whatnot. And at the risk of the understatement of the century, there's a pretty there's a gap uh, between those conversations and these conversations happen. And I think that I think it's fair to say that no matter what your conclusion is about what Google should have done, what Kaspersky should have done, and what other companies that inevitably and regularly run into this situation should do. I, I think that something that's a lot harder to argue is that we, the public, should better understand the immense power that private corporations have in this space. There's not an easy analogy in other spaces in terms of private capability to shut down a counterterrorism operation. And so I think the more public understanding of this, the better, even if Google did the right thing and Kaspersky did the right thing. I think it's important for the public to better understand what they did and the fact that it happens, you know, more than just this. I think it's important to understand that this is not necessarily shutting down the operation either. You're basically disrupting an, an, an aspect of the operation that you have visibility into, which is the use of maybe the use of this specific malware or the use of this exploit chain or this these zero days. The idea that Project Zero shut down a U.S. government counterterrorism operation just sounds preposterous to me. And I think it's it's important to put it within the like the set reality that they've basically disrupted parts of these campaigns. Because if my government's counterterrorism operation is dependent on someone finding XYZ zero data, I mean, right? Am I making sense? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a fair assessment slash you know, criticism of the way uh, that I framed it in the headline. I obviously don't have full visibility. No, 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 no I'm not operation, talking about your headline. So. I'm talking about a lot of the public discussion is around like how dare Google unilaterally shut, uh, forget your headline, how dare Google, how dare Google or how dare Kaspersky shut down something this important to mankind and humanity. And it's they're basically just outed or disrupted a small aspect of an operation that they have visibility on. There's nothing more than that, I think. Right. I mean, yeah, I definitely can't say uh, definitively that it would be pretty much impossible to say definitively the totality uh, of the operation. So shut down an entire operation is probably the wrong way to frame it and the wrong way to discuss it. I agree. Yeah. And you and I just settled on an agreement that everyone knows what they're looking at. And everyone, when you look at the code, they have visibility on who this is. They have victimology data. They have all kinds of code overlapping and technology to look at it. Yet at the same time, we hear that the attribution is hard. Private sector should avoid attribution. 
this story has all the elements of attribution there because Tag does attribution on one side, but Project Zero doesn't. And it feels like Google is playing both sides of this. When Tag wants to do attribution and out Chinese operations, they do it openly and, and blatantly. And in this case, well, we don't really do attribution, but we're just blocking things. There seems to be like another mini story within a story about one, is attribution as hard as they say it is, if everyone knows what they're looking at? And two, should private sector companies be doing this level of attribution with the kind of confidence level that they have? It's a good question. You, you've opened up Pandora's box on these on the bigger questions about the feasibility and the wisdom of private sector attribution. I think that there is something interesting in Google specifically about how different teams within Google approach this same problem and opens up one of the, I don't want to say unanswered questions I'm, 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 in terms of what I've done reporting, but uh, certainly not answered to my satisfaction, which is how does these decisions inside Google even made? What are the policies? Let me ask you this, because let's have the discussion then. When you say, how are these decisions made? Decisions on what? On to patch, to report it to Apple, to publish a blog post, take certain domains offline? Like what exactly or are these decisions? Or to attribute versus uh, not attribute. And are is that decision different based? Are there any factors that you know play into that decision? Would it be that if a US or Western operation was discovered definitively, would that weigh at all? And who would that who would be making that decision with those weighed variables? Those right. are we the have, kinds- we've had examples of private sector companies describing operations as friendlies and basically saying certain friendly nations are a lot more responsible and we're more likely to treat them a little differently. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that I think basically everything, all the questions you just described, and then the few that I just asked, I think those are the questions I have about how Google, but it makes these decisions. But just to be perfectly clear, this is not Google exclusive. This is a problem that, you know, or an issue that anyone in this space runs into, whether or not it's been publicly discussed that way. Oh, 100%. We mentioned Google and Kaspersky. I've seen lookout security publishing, outing and publishing reports on Russian operations against Islamic targets, this counterterrorism, the victimology are along the same line. So a lot of private sector companies do this kind of attribution and make these decisions to go public with it. But I think, again, just going back to the original argument I made around, let's just not assume that you're basically shutting down these operations. You're just disrupting a small part of it. And I think also, if we're talking about, there, like I said, so this is a conversation that usually happens in, in private, but I think that there are a few examples of it bubbling up into public. I think that in June, June 2018, a little bit after the Slingshot report happened, there was a series of statements by FireEye executives on this exact topic in a way that I haven't seen discussed similarly by uh, by other companies. And they touched on a bunch of the notes, uh, a bunch of the important issues from this story, including what are the defining characteristics of Western cyber operations. And we can maybe get into that later if you want. But they also talked about what do you do if you see counterterrorism operations? Is there a distinction between stopping it and publishing it? And Or is it, is it I've seen the phrase, big boy rules. If you get caught, then too bad. So they're, they're, that's a good, in terms of any Anyone trying to understand this problem set in the big picture, I recommend going back and reading that CyberScoop article with Kevin Mandia, John Hulquist, and company, where they just actually go in public and on record and discuss this. Do you, there's so much to get to, and I want to, like, have you heard discussion at all about whether friendly governments should put some sort of watermark in, in pieces of malware so that people, people who find it can not necessarily turn a blind eye, but treat differently 
No, I haven't. Have you? I've heard that. I've heard that kind of floated around as well. If governments, if it's properly, if it's properly regulated in some way and governments can mark their malware that are specific to, say, counterterrorism operations, that that could be an idea as well. Now, let me ask you, let me ask you the question this way. Do you think it's appropriate at all? It's ever appropriate for a, for a, a security vendor to whitelist malware, regardless of where it comes from? I... Unfortunately, I feel like I have the non-fun answer right now, which is that I don't really feel like I have the answer on that front. And I feel like my role is to make public the conversation, which is like the boring journalism school answer. But that is really what I spent the time before publishing this thinking about. Because obviously, when you publish a story on this and the conspiracy story, you think it's human to think, are they doing the right thing? Are they doing the wrong thing? But The conclusion that I came to is that they're doing the thing that most people don't realize that they do. And the most important definitive role I need to play right now is to help more people understand like the realities of this space. Have you gotten my biggest beef with with this? All of this is the fact that Google just basically did, did a marketing blog post and flexed that for nine months we saw this and we were able to look and see this and we had this amazing portent visibility. None of you haven't seen it and we're not going to give you any clues to go look on your network. So there's no IOCs, no Yara rules, no hashes, nothing. It's basically a marketing report. And it's interesting to me that Google has chosen like this place to wave their hands and get this kind of marketing visibility for Project Zero when the original mission of Project Zero might have been a little different. How, how What do you think is going on over there as it relates to Project Zero delving into this and the whole marketing of it? First of all, I told you this in private, but I, I enjoyed your newsletter last week. And as I was writing my story, your newsletter hit my inbox and I was like, this is perfect. This you know really fits and helps me think about this in an important way. So I actually was interested in asking you about how you thought about it and how you wrote that. Again, that kind of goes to my visibility into Project Zero and TAG and how they think about it is unfortunately limited, which you can easily tell that by the by the story that I wrote. It's not like I have full transparency over there, but I think it's fair to say that they're they're not of one mind necessarily about what they're doing and, and all the choices they make. I think I noted in the story, the chronicle the thing, the, the, gossip girl, the gossip girl chronicle thing, which was also another right. third Google unit at the time uh, that was doing public disclosure, including some attribution pieces as well. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, and I noted also that in these recent Project Zero posts, there were pretty glare, glaring omissions that you just laid out there. And we talked earlier about the omission of attribution. And okay, that's the obvious one. But also in terms of technical uh, details that help defenders, there's a pretty glaring omission on a lot of that stuff. Not pretty glaring. Um, there's and- nothing. Let's be honest. It's literally a notice on your door that there's been a roaming, a roving gang in your neighborhood with like master keys for every door in the neighborhood. And they're, they're amazing. We've seen the master keys and these guys are amazing. Good luck. And that's what they left to the rest of us to decide. And if it's a counterterrorism operation and I'm not a terrorist, I feel like, okay, fine. But even that Google didn't share with us. It didn't, wouldn't even share victimology so that at least we can be at ease that this is something that really isn't a target for me. And that's my biggest beef. It's like you come and you flex and say that there's this apex threat actor that's capable of doing all these incredible, amazing things. Basically, good luck. 
Yeah, I enjoyed the, not that I enjoyed, but I definitely noticed the conversation after these blog posts were made, the conversation on Twitter saying uh, a lot of the same things that you're saying and wondering out loud. I was not the first person to wonder, wait, what does it mean that there are so few details? Why are these decisions made? And I saw a lot of people making educated guesses uh, about why about why those decisions would be made. And so, I, and I think that, again, this is not inherent to, this is not exclusive to Google. And so I think it's a conversation that the industry as a whole needs to be having more. But, but here's the worry I have is that this becomes the default and Google kind of normalizes that this is the way we treat certain operations. And I use the word balkanization. I got a little bit of pushback for, from it, but I feel like depending on which geography you're in, and depending on your your visibility and the and the private sector company that has that visibility, that's how information gets shared with the rest of defenders. And I'm taking the stance of I'm an enterprise network defender, and I see this apex threat actor burning through zero days. I want to know if I'm in the firing line. That's all. I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to make geopolitical arguments and get into the controversy of all of that. I want to get into. We talk about information sharing and the importance of private sector government information sharing. This is the only way we're going to fix cybersecurity. Blah blah blah. And then we start to normalize things like this, and it just doesn't make sense to me. Obviously, that jumped out at me from what you wrote in your newsletter. And what I wanted to ask you there is, okay, if we're so we're worried about normalization, I'm curious, where else are you seeing this kind of uh, behavior? I think we're starting to see the absence of IOCs and the absence of Yara rules everywhere. I think a lot of companies, let's get, let's put a couple of things. Let's real talk about a couple of things. These private vendors aren't doing this out of some amazing ability to protect anyone. These are blog posts that are marketing for uh, companies to go sell software and services. So let's get like that out of the right. So all the FireEye and the Mandiant and Lookout and Kaspersky, regardless of what, these are marketing things. Now, a lot of the big, the, 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 the sweet spot and the gold mine of what you have is your IOCs, like the things that give you that kind of visibility, the artifacts. If your company, and in my opinion, this is how I view it, if your company is secure in your ability to find these things and you have some of the most amazing threat intel hunters, those are the companies you're seeing releasing IOCs and Yara rules that basically help defenders go hunt for this stuff on their networks. The companies that don't, are companies that I think we as reporters and the people who are helping to amplify these marketing messages, which is basically all they are, should be a lot more discerning and, and discern between what is marketing copy and what is really useful information for defenders. I don't know if that makes sense. And that's my biggest beef mostly. I think it does make sense. I also think it's, I don't want to ascribe if it's how, how too much, too much an intent, but I think it takes advantage of uh, some weaknesses in the journalism uh, space here in terms of calling that out or the lack thereof. So yeah, no, what you're saying makes total sense. Uh, did it surprise you that you were the only person that chased this story once it was quite obviously what it was once the blog post dropped? I'm always paranoid that someone else is chasing a story like this, especially because there was public conversation about it. So I guess the answer is a little bit, but at the same time, what you just said, there's a lot that InfoSec journalists miss when it happens. And there's a, a huge amount going on right now that kind of by default takes up a lot, certainly in the US, takes up the headspace and the time and the energy of reporters. Not entirely surprised. Yeah, I think Google is, and, and I think Google Project Zero tag and all the visibility and all the telemetry, the just massive scale of telemetry that Google has means that we'll start to see the story gets repeated over and over again. Uh, think about it. Google has access to all Gmail telemetry. Google knows 
I don't want to get too deep into uh, secret sauce of threat intel research, but Google knows the the email accounts that are testing web-based exploits against certain targets. Like Google knows all of this. Google owns VirusTotal with every bit of file ever uploaded. Google has... The other one that's interesting is this Project Shield that does DDoS protection for for dissidents and and activists and so on. Like that stuff is incredible. Um, Data trove of information because Google can watch that and see exactly what's being targeted and how it's being targeted and how these exploits are being tested against their services. So I think just your eyes and just the industry's eyes on how Google is approaching this and how Project Zero approaches this becomes extremely important. And then keep in mind, Google wants to monetize all of this as well. Cybersecurity is big, massive, billion-dollar business, and Google sits on top of the, this data that's monetizable, and that's something we have to pay attention to as well. I know I'm rambling, but there's so much here. Yeah, I agree. And I do think that it's a, an important thing for journalists to be more uh, critical when they look at what information, given that enormous borderline infinite visibility, what information actually ends up in these blog posts is a pretty important thing for journalists to be looking at. Before I let you go, I want to examine one other story you wrote that was really I was really impressed with. And I like the, the, the angle you took, which is Apple's iOS platform and the fact that it's just completely locked down. It's considered the most secure. It's considered like the pinnacle of what a device should look like from a security perspective. But your reporting have found that, that this, this lockdown approach as well has created another problem. Can you describe what that was? Sure. The problem is that defenders don't have visibility onto the device. I'm certainly not the first person to report on this, and the people I talk to are certainly not the first people to say this, but I think the problem continues uh, to grow. I say problem, but there are obviously enormous benefits too. But so, you know, the problem being that a defender who normally, I say normal, so on a traditional desktop device has enormous visibility and can look through every, every dark corner of that machine virtually has huge limitations uh, on an iPhone and ultimately has a hard time definitively saying if the iPhone they own is compromised or not, especially as as we learn more and more about NSO Group doing uh, these zero-click attacks over the last few years. It used to be that you send a text message, get a fish, and it's relatively easy for a, for a normal person if their guard is up to spot it. Those phishing messages that uh, you haven't spotted a lot recently, and these attacks have to get spotted in different ways. But the other side of this that has to be said is that iPhones ha- do have, as far as we can tell, a really stellar security security track record. And that for most people, this is a tremendous solution. And it's for that reason that a lot of other vendors are either looking at or actively going down this path. But every nation state threat actor or any threat actor worth their salt has an iOS implant or, or playing around with iOS zero days. And again, we go back to Project Zero again. Project Zero has done and, and, and published incredible research reports on zero-click issues affecting iOS. And it feels like, I feel like it feels, and I know there's a security tax on the mobile side where there's, for instance, the most modern iPhone device is pretty expensive device. It's not available. It's not something that's available for the rest of, for everyone. So there's already a security tax built into mobile devices. And it's clear that any like advanced threat groups are, are playing with iOS exploits. So it feels like that, that comfort 
that iOS is the most safe and secure platform is misplaced if you are potentially a target for a, a high-end threat actor. Is that fair? I think it's certainly a fair question to be asking, especially as we're discussing how you know visibility is severely limited. And so any conclusion we have about the ultimate security of a device is difficult. However, the thing to note there is you're talking about high-end threat actors. And I think the choice that Apple is trying to make here is to get rid, I think the quote in this one, that story was getting rid of the riffraff. So getting rid of the mass threats that, that impact most people. And then on top of that, trying to make life difficult in other ways for, for the, the top threat actors. But the big goal, the big benefit of this trade-off as Apple sees it is dealing with that bottom 90% or what, take whatever number uh, you would. But that's the idea uh, behind the trade-off. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where the 10% will have the kind of visibility that gives people verifiability and certain comforts that you're mitigating your risk? Or do you think no. Apple keeps this as a closed ecosystem and this is the model we are, we're going to have to deal with moving forward? I don't see any sign that this will be different in the future or that Apple is on a different path. I think that Apple believes that they're making the right trade-offs. I think a lot of people in security broadly think Apple is making the right trade-offs. Again, I'll point to Chromebooks and other other security teams that are looking at or are going down uh, this path. So it's hard to it's hard to imagine right now Apple doing anything differently. And then again, on top of it, speaking of Project Zero, it's such a small world. That post that they made, I want to say at the beginning of the year when they talked about the re-architecture of iMessage, that's the other layer of how Apple is thinking about security. It's getting out the riffraff and then re-architecting all the parts of, of iOS in order to address the problems that apply to that top 1% of threat actors. We're at the half hour mark and I wanted to keep this as short and sweet as possible. So I'll have to ask you to come back. There's a ton of other stuff we have to get to. There's subversion of, of automatic update mechanism and some of the politics and implications of that. And I know you guys are, are, are following that stuff closely. And I want to talk to you in more detail on these mercenary APT groups that you mentioned earlier, some of these hackers for higher things. So come back on the show again. Uh, let's do it again, Patrick. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me.